Lord Jesus, we just invite you into this time. Lord, we invite you into this uh, message, what the words that you have for us, Lord, what you have for us to hear today. I pray we would hear. I pray our ears would be open, our eyes would be open to you. And Lord, I just pray that um, you would speak to us. Lord, we're open. Holy Spirit, come. Have your way here today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as many of you know, Paul and I just got back from the Holy Land. This has been our first week back. I feel like I'm still on Israel time or something. I'm tired. I want to just sleep all the time. But we had a wonderful, wonderful time and saw so many different things. I hope over the next weeks and months to kind of bring you little bits and pieces of what we learned. It wasn't like one big lesson. It was like all these little things that we learned and picked up as we went through all these holy sites in Israel. Uh, It was just so fascinating. And one thing that was really striking to us um, was how much biblical history and history history took place in in this one little region of the world uh, in Israel and we were also in Jordan and it was just incredible to see and we'd be in some places where like multiple stories from the Old Testament and the New Testament took place in that same spot and I'll be talking a little bit about that as we went as we go along um, over the weeks to come but one place I wanted to talk about for a minute is Tel Megiddo and uh, there's a slide here of Megiddo and um, there we go, the plains of Megiddo. And so this, this area is incredible. We were on a ruin looking out over the plains. So the ruin is of the city of Megiddo looking over the plains. And um, this is a place that's mentioned in Joshua. It's mentioned in Judges. It was a place that the Israelites were meant to drive out all the Canaanites, and they didn't. It was also the place where um, King Josiah was killed in Megiddo in 2 Kings. Uh, it was a key thoroughfare in the beautiful, lush Jezreel Valley. You can see how nice and green it is. Um, it kind of cuts through the middle of Israel, and so it's a very important place. Many, many kings fought at Megiddo, uh, not only just, you know, know, from biblical stories, but also the Egyptians fought there, the Ottomans, Napoleon was there. Um, So many people fought in this one area, and what's really striking about it is this is the place that's mentioned in in Revelation, if we are to take it literally, that Armageddon will take place in this plain. Uh, I have a little video for you to show you how big this plain is, and you can kind of imagine sort of the last battle, right, taking place in this, this incredibly huge valley that's surrounded by all these mountains. So it was just absolutely striking um, to think about that what history has gone on and potentially will go on in this one little place in Israel. And what's fascinating is where, where we were standing was on top of this tell, which is a kind of an archaeological dig, where many, many cities of Megiddo were formed. And so many different cultures came, and as they, they've been digging down, they found evidence of 25 different cultures which had a city on this place. So this, the culture would come up, they'd do a city, it would all fall to ruins, then it would fall do another, then they'd be taken over, then another, then another. So there's 25 layers if you can imagine uh, where we're standing uh, of this city, that's how important this location was to so many different um, cultures, so many different um, uh, you know, uh, nations. And so what's interesting, if you talk about the archaeology, we did a lot of archaeological archeolo- kind of um, exploration, and seeing that what they do when they're finding all these layers is they're looking for the different markers of those cultures. Every culture has their own markers, the Egyptian culture, the Babylonian culture, the Israeli culture, all the cultures have a different marker in them, and one marker that's super clear that you find all over the place, and that we saw all over the place, and whenever you see it, you know the Romans were here, and that is pillars. 
we saw pillars everywhere we went. If you go into this next slide, this is in the middle of Jerusalem, okay? This is a bustling, I can't see it from this picture. You can kind of see how there's like a little ledge up there. But there's, this is a modern city. There's people selling wares, there's stores, there's all this stuff. And then right in the middle of it is this little Roman street with pillars, pillars. You know the Romans were here. This is a Roman ruin in the middle of the place. Of course, there was a building on top of those pillars at one point. That's fallen down, but the pillars remain. If you go again to the next slide, this is a place called Bet Shan. And Bet Shan was another interesting city that has a lot of history to it. Um, King Saul was killed in battle, and when um, the Philistines had his body, they hung it on the gates of Bet Shan so that everybody would see that they killed the king of Israel, right? So this is a famous place. It also became one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, very important city in Rome. But here you go. You can see pillars, pillars. All the, you know Rome was here. This is a Roman city. It's the marker of the Romans. If you go to the next slide, there's another one of Bet Shan. Like just pillars, 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 pillars. That's just how the cities all looked. It was the same when we were in Turkey and Greece a number of years ago. Anytime you saw that, you said this Romans settled here. They put in big roads and they put in pillars. The last one is Caesarea Maritime, another really famous city. And I can't wait to kind of get into talking about all these cities with you someday. Um, but this is right on the Mediterranean Sea. This is where um, uh, the Apostle Paul was in prison before going to Rome. It's also where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. So this is a really important place, but this is the remains of a palace by Herod. Herod, the same Herod who ordered all the babies killed in Bethlehem. Um, he built this gorgeous palace on the sea. And what do we see here? Pillars. More pillars. And so again, we know that, the, that Rome was there, and it's an indicator of Rome. Now, why am I talking about this? What difference does this make in uh, a church on, during Lent? But we have been talking, if you'll recall, about the three pillars of Lent. These important signs and markers that we are following after God and wanting to grow deeper in our spiritual walk with God, we need those pillars. And they are just kind of as they are an indicator or sign of the Romans being there. When we see these pillars in a Christian's life, we say God's growing. God's growing this person. When we see those three pillars, what are those three pillars? Prayer, fasting, and giving. And when we see these three pillars in a person's life, what happens is we begin to get stronger. We begin, just like these pillars, let, they're still standing. <laughs> Everything else has fallen, but the pillars are still standing. And so I want to talk to us about that today, is how that these signs of our own walk with Christ, how can these be strengthened in us? We've been talking, uh, we heard, I started this out with fasting several weeks ago. Uh, Chris did an amazing talk on giving, and Relisa did one on prayer. And so now I'm going to kind of wrap it up for us today to say how can we strengthen all of these pieces of the building? Because what you'll see is that if one is off from the other, if, you, if one pillar is shorter than the other, the whole building is going to be unstable, right? So we need to learn. So what are they? Prayer. Prayers are vertical relationship. We can move on, I think, to the next slide. Yeah. Prayers are vertical relationship with God. It is how we connect with Him. And if there's no connection with God, then I would say we have no faith at all. There's no building at all to be built with, right? We need to have that connection with God. Now, some of us may be in the situation where if you had to fill out a form and it said it had religion and you had to check the boxes, you'd check the box Christianity. But that's about as far as your faith may go. Maybe you've just never known what people were talking about when they said they had a personal relationship with Christ. It's never resonated for you. You believe all the things, you know a few prayers. But I would say to you, if we don't have a connection with our Father in heaven, if we don't have a relationship with him, that's what this pillar is about. 
that, then, our, then that pillar is kind of missing in our life. Um, and so we need to know that, 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 that we know not just about God or know a few prayers to God, but that we know him. This is something for us to build in our lives. This is a pillar, the upward connection with Christ, and it's vital in our lives. But so is giving. Right? Giving, if, if, if prayer represents our vertical connection, right? giving represents our horizontal connection with our fellow man. We've, we've got to be people who give. If we're not people who are give, in fact, if you've ever met people who are not very generous, they may claim to be Christians, but they seem a little stingy, you're like, well, I don't get it. It shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to get it because it's not right. If we love God and if God's love has been spread abroad in our life, then we're going to be generous. We're gonna, it's going to automatically come. As James says, faith without works is dead. That live faith in us is going to cause us to love people and to care about them. And that's what giving is all about. Again, it's that horizontal connection that's vital in the life of a Christian. And then we have fasting. Now, fasting to me represents two things. First, to me, it represents a self-knowledge. It's this knowledge of what are the things in my life that may um, be, be becoming too much of a focus and taking my focus away from the Lord. So there has to be a self-awareness, a self um, a sort of a, a, a sort of a look inside ourselves to find out where, where are we allowing something to take the place of God, maybe even an idol in our life that we are worshiping or really focusing on instead of him in our life. But there's a second part of fasting, right? And that's laying it down. It's saying, I'm going to surrender this thing then that's kind of taking me away from God. I'm going to surrender it and lay it down. When we fast, we do it for a short period, right? It's just kind of like a, a fast for a season. But there's a sense in which fasting should be a part of our whole life, where we are allowing the Lord to examine our hearts and say, where is it that we are, are kind of getting distracted away from him? And to surrender that to him. What a beautiful thing. Fasting is the surrender. It's the internal movement of our wills to put God first. That's really what fasting is all about. So you can imagine, if we go to the next picture, which shows us our three pillars of, in, this, in this series, you can imagine if one of your pillars is lower than the other, if one of the pillars is non-existent, that building's going to be pretty crooked, right? It's not going to stand very well. Um, I'm pretty good at the praying part. I could pray more, but I love this whole, like, being with Jesus and talking to him and hearing from him. Like, that's easy for me. Giving, you know, there's other people who are more generous than I am, but I, you know, I'm getting better at giving. That's good. Fasting, I don't like giving up stuff. I like all my comforts. I like all the things that make life nice. You know, that was one of the best things about getting home from a long trip. My own shower, my own bed, you know, all the comforts. I like comfort. So my building's a little crooked. How about yours? How about yours? You know, maybe for some people we are good at the kind of internal, the kind of personal things, right? The prayer, the fasting, we're all good at that. But people, man, they drive you crazy. So the giving part, you don't really like to do that so well. Or maybe you're good at the, fa you know, the self-discipline of fasting and maybe you're good at giving to others. But that intimacy with God, that's a little scary. In some ways, most of us have a crooked building. And so God wants us to grow. Part of our growing maturity is saying, how can I make sure all three pillars are strong? How can I make sure I'm, I am so strong? My relationship with God, my, my vertical, my horizontal relationship, and even my, my understanding of myself and my submission to Christ. How can I make these strong? And because when we do, we have a strong building. And it won't fall down like all those Roman ruins we saw. It'll be standing at the end of the day. 
So I want to talk for the rest of my time here today about how can we strengthen all three of these pillars. That's how I want us to be thinking about not just during Lent, but as we go on beyond Lent, we're going to be in Palm Sunday next week and Easter, and then we're on to the rest of the year. And so how can we keep this attitude of strengthening these pillars? And we're going to look at Jesus, because I figure it's a good place to start. <laughs> Let's look at how Jesus did it, because Jesus is a really amazing example of all of this. So are we ready? We're going to talk about how Jesus had all three pillars. The first one is prayer. Jesus was really good at praying. <laughs> sure that if you've read anything about, and about Jesus' life, you know that's true. He got alone with his father a lot. Say, get alone with God. Say it. Get alone with God. Say it again. Get alone with God. He got alone with his father. He didn't neglect that. That was just a, a, an important thing. And I want to ask you, how many of you get much time alone? Now, a few of you are saying, look, I'm retired, I'm single, I'm alone all the time. But how many of you know that it's possible to be alone but not get alone with God? We can fill up our alone time with all sorts of things. I had a wonderful friend of mine who the minute she got home from work, she turned on the TV and it was going all the way until she went to bed at night. Now, it was comfort to her. It was companionship. But she never was alone, even though she lived alone. So we can be alone and yet still never get alone with God. And this is what we're talking about, getting alone with God. And then others of us, of course, are saying, I can never get alone. I've got kids, you know, filling up my house. I've got people. I've got a spouse. I've got a busy, busy work life. I've got all this stuff going on. I'm never alone. I think that um, Jesus could relate to that. Jesus had people all the time, all around him, clamoring for him, wanting to be with him. His disciples certainly were always there, plus all the crowds that were always following. They wanted him to heal them. They wanted him to do all this stuff for him. He also, um, you know, had a hard time getting alone. But part of learning to pray and developing that vertical relationship with the Lord is getting comfortable with and prioritizing being quiet and alone with God. This is something every one of us can do. If Jesus could do it, we could certainly do it. He got alone frequently. Luke 5, 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I love the lonely places. We saw lots of mountains. I should have put a picture up. I didn't. But lots of mountains where Jesus might have gone up to pray, and they are lonely, let me tell you. <laughs> they are like desert. They're, they're just empty. But he went up there because there was no distractions. No cell phone. No TV. You know, no, no people clamoring for you up there. Just alone. There was no distraction. He also did it again, Luke 6, 12. It says, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Praying, being alone with his father was a priority for Jesus. And here's the thing. It's not that he wasn't ever interrupted. He was interrupted all the time. You know, he would go up to pray and the disciples or the crowds would find him on the mountain. I love the story in Mark 6 when Jesus says to his disciples, let's get in the boat and get away because the crowds were all along, right? So they get in the boat and they try to go across the lake and by the time they get to the other side of the lake, what happens? All the crowds are, are there ahead of him. Somehow they ran or whatever. I don't know how they got there. But the crowds are already there ahead of him. This reminded me of when I was a mom with young kids. And you know that moment when, like, they're watching TV and they're quiet, and you think, I have five minutes to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and so you go, like, you, you kind of sneak away quietly, and you get in the bathroom, and, like, you're just two minutes into your business, you know what I'm saying? And you hear little voices outside the door, and you're like, are you kidding me? And you open it up, and there they are. Where were you, Mom? What were, you know, you never get away. <laughs> you never get away. And I totally relate to that. Jesus could relate to that. 
That's what happened to him. And here's the thing, he didn't get mad. He never shooed them away. It says he had compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. So moms, dads, <laughs> we have compassion. But still, he prioritized his time with his father, right? He never gave up on it. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that time with his father. He didn't say, like sometimes we say to ourselves, well, I'll do more of that spiritual thing when my kids are grown up or when my career's more established or my ministry's more established or, you know, maybe when I'm retired, then I'll really get into the Bible. I'll really start to pray. You know, we think uh, later when things are less busy. First of all, they're never going to be less busy. And second of all, we need him now. Right? Man, we need him now. We need him now. So be like Jesus. Let's get to that mountain to be alone with God. Let's find it however way we can. Why do we need this? We can focus on God without distractions. That's the first reason, and, and, and I encourage you to do that. I know that lots of us pride ourselves on being great multitaskers. I'm always like that. I can do five things at once. You know, I'm so good. Actually, you may know this. You know, you're actually, it's impossible to multitask. Your brain actually only does one thing at a time. It's just that your brain is good at chopping things up into little pieces. So if you have three things to do, your brain is chopping it up and going, you know, cycling through it really fast. And if you have five things to do, it's cycling even faster. No wonder our brains are exhausted, right? So when you get alone with God, don't multitask. Don't check your email in between Bible verses. Don't answer the text while you're in the middle of praying and meditating. Just put it all away and put those distractions away. Also, in our time alone with God, it's where intimacy grows. And this is so obvious, it probably you know, doesn't even need to be said, but, but you know this if you've been in any kind of intimate relationship with a husband or a wife or anyone, that you know that you have to spend time alone together. Or you don't know anything about each other. You can't share your hopes and your dreams and, and your joys, and you can't you know, care for one another. Like, you have to have that alone time, or there's no intimacy at all. You don't really even know who the other person is. And so this is how we grow in that intimacy with God. And I, I thought of this this week. This is how you get to the good stuff. Do you know people who just seem like their walk with God is so joyful? Like, it just fills them up. It just, you know, they're, they're always saying how God is their comfort, and they love to worship, and once they get here, they're just ready to worship. You know, how does that happen? That, that being in love with Jesus, it comes from time alone with him. There's no other way. I'm sorry, you can come to church every week for the rest of your life, and you'll get something, you will, but, but that intimacy the pri in the privacy of your own soul is only going to come as you're alone with Jesus. So I'm just begging you and, and urging you, and myself as well, to get alone with him regularly, frequently. And finally, this is where you hear God's voice. He's a still, small voice. He's not going to shout at you over all your emails and your meetings at work. He's not going to shout at you over the kids' voices. He's going to shout. He's going to speak to you quietly in the quiet moments. My husband, you know, gets up sometimes in the night to, to go to the bathroom, and he says, often that's when God speaks to him. And it's funny, you know, we laugh about it. He'll be, he'll be like, yeah, at 2 in the morning I had a revelation, you know. But, but it's because it makes sense, right? It's, he's quiet. The distractions are gone. It's just a moment where God can speak to him. 
So, you know, all of this to say, not that in the busyness of our life, we shouldn't also aim to get connected to God, right? If we've read um, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence, we know that he, this old monk back in the, I don't know, 15th century, maybe 16th century, he talked about, you know, being able to wash the dishes and be in God's presence just as much as when he's in his prayer closet. And, you know, anything we do, we want to be in God's presence. Yes, of course, we want to be able to just remember when the kids are running around, when we're in a hard meeting at work, that we're just like, yes, Lord, I know you're here with me, that we can do that. Jesus did that. He lifted up prayers in the middle of things all the time. But Jesus also got alone with his Father. So I just don't think you can do the one without the other. If all you're doing is catching a minute with God here and there in the midst of chaos, I'm guessing that you're not drawing close to him and allowing that relationship and that intimacy to grow. I love the story, which I'm sure many of you have heard, of Susanna Wesley. She's the mother of John and Ch uh, Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist movement. And she had a very busy life. She had, how many kids does she have? 19 kids. 19 kids. So if you got like four or five, you got nothing, right? Uh, she got 19 kids. Um, nine of them died early in infancy, but so that was a hardship and a sadness. And her husband wasn't the best, apparently. He kind of like left her for a while. He was in jail a couple times. They had constant financial problems. Their house burned down a few times. So this was not an easy life. And how many know the story of what Susanna Wesley used to do when she, every single day, she would take her long apron and she'd put it up over her head, in the middle of her house, all the kids around, and everyone knew she was with Jesus. No one talked to her. No one bothered her because she was under the apron and she would just pray. It was like her little tent of meeting to be with Jesus just for, I don't know how long she did it, but you know she was there praying and people knew to leave her alone. So get it however you can. <laughs> Grab the moments. Go to the bathroom. Go even in, at work, you know, when there's something going on. Just, just exit for a minute. Get to your office or go to the bathroom. Just, Lord, I need to be with you just for a minute. You will be amazed. I'm always amazed. Because I'm a busy, busy bee, you know. <laughs> I like to do stuff. And so I frequently and over my whole life have come to a place where I'm like, I don't have time to pray. I got so much to do today. Like, I'll pray tomorrow. <laughs> and those times when, and it was true when I used to work in industry and in the tech field, and I used to be at work, and there was meetings and all this stuff, and I'd be, oh, I'm so busy. Or when my kids were home, and I was home with them, and that was too busy, and now I'm a pastor, and I got all these people and things. You know, sure, that's, I'm too busy, right? It always feels like I'm too busy. But if I take a minute, and I just stop, and I, I say, I'm just going to take this time for you, Lord, and I take some deep breaths, and I just lift my head up and I start to praise and I start to thank him and then start to pour out some fears or some concerns. And then I just rest again in his presence. Let him put his arms around me if that's what I'm needing. Sometimes he might kick me a little bit in the rear end, get going on this, whatever. But we talk. It doesn't have to be long, but I come away a changed person. It changes me every time. And I'm still surprised by it. <laughs> Decades later in my spiritual life, I'm still surprised by it. And weirdly enough, I'm also crazy productive after that. Now, I don't do it in order to be productive, right, to get things done. But there's a, there's a principle here. And the principle is if we put God first, he sorts out the rest of our busy lives. Can someone say amen to that? If we put God first, he sorts out the rest of our busy lives. 
So I want to encourage you this week, I'm going to give you a challenge that every single day this week you take, even if it's five minutes, and just get alone with your Jesus. Get alone with him just for five minutes. And you're going to see this words from Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Say, get alone with God. We're going to get along with God. Let's do that. Now, the second thing I want to talk about here is giving, right? That's just one pillar. We talked about prayer. But let's talk about giving as a prayer. It's our horizontal connection with our fellow man, how we love others. And we see Jesus here so powerful, so masterful, right, at the way he interacted with every kind of person. I want you to think about for a minute what kind of person Jesus, what kind of world he was born into, okay? He was a rabbi, so he was trained, in the synagogue, he was educated. He could hang with all the top-notch people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the law, you know, teachers of the law. He could speak their language. He was their intellectual equal. He was trained like them. They didn't always like what he said, okay? But, you know, he was right there. That was kind of his people and his culture. But also, Jesus reached all kinds of other people, right? Other kinds of people in all kinds of walks of life, people very unlike him, and he saw the best in them. You just always got the impression that Jesus liked them all. He liked every person he met, whether they were the lowest of the low, the highest of the high, somewhere in between. He liked them. He, he loved them. And this is something we need to learn, right? Because we tend to glom on to the people like us. I'll give to them. I'll help them um, because we get them. We don't get those other people that do the other thing. Um, but Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't have that requirement. He gave to them from a, from a heart of love for all. Service and our giving needs to come from a heart of love. Chris talked about this beautifully a few weeks ago. You know, why, who's getting the glory when you're helping somebody? You know, is it because you just want to feel good about yourself? Um, or is it so that that person is, is, is loved and knows the love of Jesus? That's, who's getting the glory? Is it Jesus or is it us? See, when we can truly love others, then we're less concerned about our own glory. We're more concerned that this precious person before us receives the love and care that they need and they see Jesus. That's our goal with anyone that we meet, anyone. And Jesus stepped out of the box all the time. He delivered and healed Mary Magdalene. If you recall, she was demon-possessed and a woman, not someone that a rabbi usually hung out with. But he loved her, and he actually she became part of his kind of family, an entourage that went around with him as he taught and, and did miracles. He spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, a different race, a hated race. There was a lot of racism there between the Samaritans and the Jews, and he just said, the heck with all that, and he went right to her. And guess what he did for her? She was the first person he told that he was the Messiah. Out of all the other people he'd been with, all the other Jews, all the other Pharisees, he told the Samaritan woman first. I love that. I love that. And she went and told everybody, and he stayed and taught them. He treated her with respect, even honor. He called Matthew the tax collector. He was hated by all the Jews because he was a sellout to Rome. I don't know how many of you watch The Chosen now, but now I cannot picture Matthew except as the little guy in The Chosen, you know, who's all kind of awkward and everything and intense and everything. And nobody liked him, and they were like, why are you bringing him, Jesus? And, and Jesus like, I'm, I'm calling Matthew. Like, he's one of us now. And how they kind of work that out. So it just, 
Um, it, it's so interesting to me that in his horizontal connections, it almost seems like Jesus was looking for those people whom others would be most surprised to see him interact with. Doesn't it? It seems like he was trying to surprise people. He was looking for people who were the most surprising person for him to reach out to, and that's who he did. Who's the first people to see him risen from the dead? Women, of all people. Women who had you know, no rank in those days. Um, he did this over and over again. Matthew 9, he says this, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He didn't go to people that had it all figured out. He went to people who needed him, who were sick. And when they asked, are you willing? He said, of course I'm willing. He was generous no matter what. And so I kind of ask you a provocative question today. Who would people most surprise to, for you to, to see you help and care for and love? Who would people be most surprised to see you reach out to with love and with care. Maybe it's a person from a different side of town, a different background or religion or lifestyle. Maybe it's a person in your family. <laughs> People are like, yeah, no, they don't talk. Maybe it's a, a friend or a neighbor. Who's a person that people would be most surprised to see you love, but that Jesus is calling you to love? How can we be more generous and open to all, open-handed, and you know what? We have to ask to Je for Jesus to fill our heart with love because sometimes we're not there, right? Uh, our heart's not there with love. We're, we're judgy. We're, we're angry. We're whatever we are. And so I just, we, we ask the Lord, fill me with love. Fill me with love, Lord. Beyond all other things, fill me with love. I want to read one last poor passage as we're talking about giving, and that's from Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And when we see this passage, I know what every one of you thinks about, if you've been in church a long time, we think about sending out missionaries. This is the missionary passage, right? There's workers, we send you out, go off to wherever, Africa or Asia or somewhere, and go be missionaries. There's, there's the harvest. But Jesus isn't talking about some faraway harvest. He's talking about the people right outside their doors. He's talking about the people right outside your doors and my doors. And he's saying, I need to know that there's people who are going to go out among these people who are outside the doors. The workers are not someone else. It's us. It's not a special calling on one of our lives to be that person. No, it's a calling on every one of our lives to go out and to, to love people, to feed the poor, to have compassion on those who are hurting, to, to, to house the homeless, to feed the, you know, uh, put clothes on the people that have no clothes. It's on us to be the workers in the field that go out and talk about Jesus and, and just show people the love of Jesus in all kinds of creative and wonderful ways. This is our job. This is our job. And God gives us the ability to do this. I love what Pastor Aaron shared last week. If you weren't here last week, I really urge you to pull up that, that um, sermon on the web. It's, it's on our YouTube sli slide and also on our um, podcast. But he said this, we have a chance as Christians to be a beautiful contrast to the contentious partisan, political, and outraged world. We have a chance to be a contrast to that by showing 
the fruit of the Spirit to all we encounter. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Who's God calling you to show the fruit of the Spirit toward? That's how we grow that pillar. Freely you've been received, freely give. Finally, let's talk about fasting. Our third pillar, it's the surrender. It's the internal movement of our wills to, to God, to put God first before all things, before our comforts and desires, and to surrender that to him. Say, I want you to be first in my life. And I'm going to just take us a little bit to the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted. He was, uh, this is in Matthew 4, and you know, he was already fasting for 40 days. So he has already been fasting physically, but his fast got put to the test, right, by some, some temptations that Satan threw at him. And listen to the things that Satan threw at him. They often put them in the three categories from 1 John 2, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the lust of the flesh, Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So that certainly would have been appealing. He was hungry. He was appealing kind of to the flesh part of him. Of course he'd want to eat. Then Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the highest point of the temple. The idea being, show off your power. Show that you're God. You know, it's a pride of life. Show who you are. And finally, the lust of the eyes. Showing him the kingdoms of the world. Satan said, all this will be yours if you bow down and worship me. It was a temptation toward riches and, and power and glory and fame. And what was Jesus' response? Does anybody remember? What does Jesus say every single time Satan would tempt him with something? He says a, a passage from Scripture. He brings the truth from the word to, to say to Satan, look, what you're saying might be tempting. Right? You know, we don't know how tempted Jesus was by any of that. We do know he was tempted. So some of that must have appealed to his humanness. And yet he said, I'm going to follow the word of God. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to give in to my own comforts and my own flesh. I'm going I'm to listen to the word of God. I'm going to call on the word of God. And I'm going to follow you, God. I'm going to put you first. And um, it's a good, first of all, a good technique. If you are struggling with something in your life, a temptation, a situation in your life that just keeps, keeps bringing you back down, find a scripture. Make scripture work for you. <laughs> find a scripture, a truth that speaks to that situation and just memorize it, put it on a piece of paper, carry it around with you, put it on your dashboard or your car and pray it, say it every time that temptation comes. It's powerful. And so this is what Jesus did. He had great self-awareness. It takes self-awareness to realize what things are tempting you, what things are causing you to slip away from God. Um, and, and, you know, we don't talk about sin much, but sin is essentially anything that pulls us away from God. We have some very clear sins in Scripture. You shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie. But then there's lots of other things that, that may constitute a sin for you, but not for me. I told you at the beginning of Lent that I had to give up my, my video games that I was playing at night because it was keeping me up too late. Now, I don't think the video games themselves are a sin, but the way I was using it to just stay up too late and be unhealthy was a sin for me. That's why I put it down. That might not be your issue, but you may have other things that God is saying to you, this thing is drawing you away from me. I don't want anything to draw me away from Jesus. I don't want anything to draw me away. How easy it is, right, to slip into whatever the thing is, lust or greed or, or gluttony. Or what, but, oh, man, if I think of what I have, the riches we have, church, to have Jesus close to us and to let anything get in the way. Are we crazy? Are we crazy? And so I ask us to ask the question, what tempts you away from God? What takes time, energy, or strength away from you following him, and what would it look like to lay that down.
That's what Jesus did. We know that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he had a very big temptation in front of him, which was to get out of crucifixion. He could have gotten out of it. I think I would have wanted to get out of crucifixion. But instead he said to his father, not my will, but yours be done. And thank him that he did it. So where is God asking us to say, not my will, but yours be done? Just let that sit for a minute. We listened to a video in our life group this Wednesday from Andy Stanley, and he talked, he made a statement, and he said, salvation is free, but to follow Jesus will sometimes cost you. And it was an interesting thought. And um, he was talking about that crossroads that we come to in our lives where we know that there's a choice in front of us. And this will happen many times over your life, right, where you know there's a choice to either do it your way or do it God's way. <laughs> whether it's a job you're taking, a person you're dating, a thing you're doing, whatever. You know, you just know there's that moment, you know there's a, ch- a crossroads, and you get to make a choice. Um, and he was saying, you know, that's, those are the moments when we decide who are we following, <laughs> Who are we actually following? And I want to just say to us that we will never regret saying, I want to go God's way. You'll never regret that. Jesus prayed this prayer of surrender to God, and thank God he did. Because we're standing here. I'm standing here because Jesus said yes. Right? Because he went the way that he and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had all come together to decide to do. He knew, and so he said yes to it, even though he knew the cost in front of him. And thank God that he did. And I'm not saying if you say yes to God, it's going to have quite as big of an implication. (laughs) Um, You're not going to save the whole world. But let me tell you something, you'll never regret it. When we say yes to God, it's always good. It's always good. You're going to look back on the time you said yes to God, and you're going to say, thank God I did that. I'm, I'm of an age now where I can look back. And there's many times I said yes to God, and there's sometimes I said no to God. And let me tell you something. The times I said no to God, those did not work out okay. <laughs> it was not a good move, okay? It's just not a good move. Things that happened from that point on that then, you know, just kind of steam, steamroll. They keep going, right? You keep having to deal with the thing that you said no to God about. Whereas when I have said yes to God, oh, the joy, the peace, the, the, the bounty that God brings in your life when you say yes to God. So I'm sparing you, if you're a little younger, sparing you some some pain. Just say yes to God. Just say yes to him. So how's your building today? How crooked is your building? How the columns of prayer and fasting and giving in your life? Today is a day to say to God, I want you to strengthen me in all of these areas. Now, I know some of you are saying, I got it. I need, I've worked on all of them. (laughs) We all have worked on all of them. But I think today God may be calling you in one or, or maybe two ways to really strengthen these pillars in your life. I'm going to invite the band to come on up at this point because this is going to be a moment for you to just reflect. Maybe it's just that you need to get alone with God. If, all, if nothing else, just get alone with God this week, every day. Just set yourself a timer, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes if you can, and just be alone with him. Just listen to his voice, just pray. Talk to him. I challenge you. And maybe God is working in some ways on your love and generosity toward others. Maybe there's someone who, it was very clear when I was talking about that person that you is very different than you or very hard for you to love. Maybe right now you know who I'm talking about. 
And this is a week for you to say, I want to I love this person with your love, Jesus. Help me to love. And it might be that there's a moment coming for you right now. There's a crossroads, a decision. Say, I'm going to lay something down. I want to go God's way. And I'm just telling you again that you will not regret saying yes to God. You will not regret it. Think of what it ha- would have happened if Jesus would have said no in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead, he said yes. Let's pray. Father God, we just um, are so thankful that you love us so much that you even want to be in relationship with us. And so, Lord, we're just astonished that you, you say, come to me, all you who are, are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that you want us to come. And so I just pray, first and foremost, we just come right now. Just take a deep breath. Connect with your Father. He loves you. He loves you.